All right. Uh, our sister church, Freedom Calvary Chapel in Pueblo, sends you their regards. Last Sunday, I was out of the pulpit uh, doing a dedication down there. They got into their first building, and after eight years and, uh, and watching the fruit of God grow and the people grow and the pastor and his wife down there, Carl Trost and Heather grow, it was just such a pleasure to be down there with them, to worship with them. We had such a great time. And like all uh, first church openings, it was replete with a thousand glitches that made us all laugh. Praise God. Sound system doesn't work. Who needs it? Let's just sing. Let's just praise. It was a wonderful time. But uh, they wanted to let you know that they were thankful that you were willing to let us go for a weekend down there to, to minister to them. So thank you very much. You're a blessing. There is something that grieves my heart today. I don't know if you've been watching the news, but on Shabbat, their Sunday over in Israel, their day of worship, uh, they on the last day of the Festival of Tabernacles were shelled with over 5,000 rockets from Hamas. It was totally and completely unprovoked. They came over the Gaza Strip and, and started pulling people out of cars and shooting them at gunpoint. Uh, raping women in, in the streets, just doing despicable and horrible things. Over 5,000 rockets. And it, it reminded me of what happened to America at Pearl Harbor. We did nothing to, to warrant that decimation of our naval forces in, in Hawaii. It caught us off guard. In fact, uh, one of the best books ever written on the Pearl Harbor attack is At Dawn We Slept. Arthur Pringy wrote the book, and it, it's a fantastic uh, journal of what happened and all of the coincidences that had to come together. It reminded me also, this is Israel's 9-11. This is for them the most catastrophic thing that has happened to them since May of 1948. This is a horrendous thing, and I am amazed that there are actually some civilized nations around the world that are blaming Israel for Hamas terrorist attacks. I, I can't even fathom what kind of deception is necessary for you to buy into that, that lie. But would you join me this morning in praying for Israel? We're commanded throughout scriptures uh, to, to pray for the peace of Israel, to pay, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, Psalm 122 and, and verse 6 says. But my heart grieves over that. The church does not replace Israel. We've been grafted into that tree. We were wild olive shoots and have inherited all of the promises that God gave the patriarchs. We are privileged but let's stand at the forefront of standing up for Israel, keeping them lifted up in prayer, asking that God would once again send his armies to defeat the Philistines, which is how you say Palestinian in the Old Testament. Did you know it's the same identical name? If the Philistines had been wiped out in the time of Saul or David or subsequent kings, we wouldn't be facing today what we are at the hands of terrorists, backed by Iran, who were giving billions and billions of dollars to to fund world terrorism. There is much that is so desperately wrong in our nation, in our world today. Can we pray for Israel, please? Heavenly Father, we lift up this people, this nation that you birthed, the people that you chose, the patriarchs through whom you made your promises, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the 12 tribes that 
that came out of Jacob. You have a plan. You have a purpose. But I know this, that for thousands of years, they have been unjustly persecuted. They've been blamed for everything. There are some that even deny that six million Jews died in the Holocaust. How can they deny the reality of history? Because they choose to. Because there are antichrist forces out there today that are trying to destroy the memory of the living God amongst the people of the world. Trying to destroy your people. Trying to water down our faith right here in America so that we no longer consult your word or let its authority speak to us. Instead, we're blown here and there by every popular wind of doctrine by the hands of the pagans. Father, we want to stand firm in our faith. We want to remember Israel. I want you to give Benjamin Netanyahu all of the wisdom that Solomon ever possessed, that you would give skill and strength to their forces, that you would give them opportunity, that you would once again show yourself to be Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of armies, and that you would be at the head of your army in, in them trying to take back these 190-plus hostages and, the, and address the atrocities by this wicked people. We commit Israel into your hands. Lord, why is it that this little nation the size of New Jersey is picked on and pointed out by all the nations of the world? It has to be demonic. We want to remember them in prayer and continue to lift them up all of our days, Father. Hear our prayers. Move on their behalf once again, Father. Remember in Hezekiah's time, you dropped 185,000 Assyrians in a single day. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. Come against those that come against your people and want to wipe them off the face of the earth. We commit ourselves and them into your hands. Make us faithful in prayer as these days move forward. As we anticipate the coming of your son, our hearts cry out, come quickly, Lord Jesus. This world is spiraling out of control and we seem to be helpless to stop it. So we look to you and we give you glory and honor and praise and ask that you speak to us this morning in Ephesians in Jesus' name, Father. Amen. Amen. We are in Ephesians chapter 2. If you would like to uh, turn there in your Bible, this is really not a theological book, although through the centuries, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of pages of commentary have been written about this book that we hold in our hands. Paul seemed to have such a way of putting things that it didn't require a lot of explanation. I think that we can overthink this. I don't want you to come to uh, Ephesians chapter 2 saying, well, pastor, tickled my ears. Give me something new, historical insight or some interesting quirk of the original languages. Uh, our job is to simply put into practice the Word of God, to do what it says, to realize we are who it says that we are, past, present, and future. And that's what we have beginning in verse 1. God has outlined his plan for us back in, in chapter 1. If you're wondering, what's God doing? He's ultimately going to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. We were told that in chapter 1 and verse 10. What is God doing? He's got a plan. How long is it going to take to complete and fulfill that plan? I do not know, but he means for us to keep our eyes on it until it's fulfilled. Trust his promises. His word is faithful and true. No, they will not get the best of Israel. Though they face terrible atrocities this morning, things that I've seen and, and heard. 
are the most despicable things that human beings can do to human beings. But it explains to us at the start of chapter 2 why some people act that way. They're religious, but they don't know God. They don't know God. They're not filled with His Holy Spirit. They haven't accepted Jesus Christ, His Son. They don't follow His Word, and they act accordingly. This is who we were, Paul is going to start. Look at verse 1. As for you, you and I, we were dead in our transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Paul doesn't go into great and dark detail about what your sins look like. He's not out to publicly humiliate you or I. But just for a second, think back to the darkness that characterized your world before you met Jesus Christ. The sins that you committed, the things that, you, that stained your soul, you carried around as a bondage of guilt until Christ came. And He turned on the light and drove the darkness out. We were dead in our transgressions and sins in which you used to live. Underline that. That used to be how you and I lived. It must not be how you and I live today. The world is opposed. Understand this. Whatever social media is trying to ram down your throat this morning, can I tell you, if they don't know Jesus, they got nothing to offer you. Don't stake your sense of self-worth on how many likes you have in social media. That is so shallow. There's a part of me that just wants to say, get a life. If that's your life, destroy your cell phone. Do, do us all a favor. Learn to talk to humans again. I pray that God would give you carpal thumb, and, and you wouldn't be able to do this anymore. Every time I turn around, somebody is crashing into somebody at some straight piece of road, and you're going, how could you possibly have an accident? There's not even an intersection there. Well, somebody put, put on their brakes, and they're down here looking at their phone, driving with their knees. If God meant for you to drive with your knees, he would have amputated your arms. Come on. Use your hands, both up on the steering wheel. If you don't have Bluetooth, can I tell you, the world will not stop revolving if you pull over and actually answer the phone then when you're not endangering all the rest of us. We used to ape the world. We used to mimic the world. Satan is still trying to get you to do that. What the world thinks is popular, Satan wants you to think is popular. What the world thinks is cool, Satan wants you to lust after. Oh, I've got to have that. Why? Because the world chases after that. And there's a part of the world inside you and me that's called our old nature that's drawn to that stuff. It can take a thousand forms, popularity, skill, possessions, money, wealth, fame, acclaim. This is a description of who we are, but this must not be who we are. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are not a free agent anymore just saying, well, whoever pays me the highest salary, I'll play football for them. You are not a free agent. You've been signed. You're under contract, a contract signed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who you serve. Reaffirm that in your own life as often as Satan tempts you to do otherwise. As for you, you were, past tense, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Is there really a marked difference between the two? Well, hammer T is an old archery term that means you missed the mark. 
Yeah, you missed the mark like the target was a thousand yards away and you were blindfolded. That's how much you and I missed the mark. Well, you say, well, I'm... And, and some of you actually resent being referred to as a sinner. When you think sin, well, you're thinking, well, I'm not a mass murderer. I'm not a Hamas terrorist. I don't kill people. I... And you start measuring yourself by other sinful, fallen, unsaved people. Well, I'm not as bad as some. You're not as good as Jesus Christ. He's the standard. God's standard is perfection. You can't attain that on your own. You can't work it up. You can't try hard enough. You either accept the righteousness of Jesus Christ in humility, you confess your sins, you repent of them, you ask Him to be your Lord and Savior, He fills your heart. You're a new creation. All things have passed away, but have they? Or are you still clinging on to something? Does Satan still have a hook in your flesh? Now, I'm not saying that you rob 7-Elevens on your way home from church. That's, sometimes they're very subtle hooks. I know little about fishing. I find it to be extraordinarily boring. And then the things I catch are generally minnow size and used for bait for other fish. I am not a fisherman, never have been, never will be. But I know this, the smaller the fish, the smaller the hook. Satan just wants to get a hook in you. He doesn't care what size he starts with. He can widen that breach anytime he wants to. But if you're thinking like the world, if you're acting like the world, instead of who you are in Christ Jesus, if you're still doing things that cause you shame or that you wouldn't want your pastor to see you doing, those things need to be repented of. In our flesh dwell, Paul said, in my flesh dwells no good thing. What do you reckon dwells in yours? No good thing. Don't feed it. Don't feed it. You ever, you ever feel that tug of war in your heart of hearts, in your mind? Oh, I, I, I want to do wrong, but I know what's right to do, but, but I find myself being drawn this way. And you feel like there's this tug of war in your heart, and you're wondering, who's going to win? The one you feed. Feed your new nature. Feed it on the Word of God, on fellowship, on worship. Otherwise, the world will get the best of you. And if you give Satan an inch... Ten years from now, he'll take a mile. And you'll wonder to yourself, how in the world did I get here? One step at a time. One small step at a time. Satan is patient. But make sure that he's not setting a hook in your jaws. Make sure that you are walking tight with the Lord Jesus in his word every day. What day does he not want to speak to you? What day is there that you have in your agenda you don't need to be filled with his Holy Spirit? Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. That is nothing of spiritual value. We have no ministry apart from a daily filling of his Holy Spirit. We have no guidance apart from his word and the leading of his Holy Spirit. Without him, we have nothing. And yet there's a lot of Christians these last days that are just kind of limping from one episode to another in their lives. And you look at them and go, where's the victory? When's the last time you told anybody about Jesus? When's the last time you had a Bible study with somebody or discipled them or shared how to get saved with them? These things should prick our consciences because we, the church, can't afford to go the way of the world. And that is a characteristic of the Laodicean lukewarm church all around us. Fight against lukewarmness with everything that is within you. Any old dead fish can float downstream. 
I'm not calling you a dead fish. Okay, don't take it personal. It's, kind of, it's a metaphor. Work with me. Who I was, I don't much want to think about. But he calls me to think about it from time to time to keep me humble. Colossians 1.21 says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. And I can look back and I may not have committed the same sins you did. We're all different and have different predilections. But we've all stumbled. Can we agree on that? We've all missed the mark. Trespasses, incidental sins that we washed away as white lies or didn't really matter. Sins that we intend, sins that we don't intend. They're covered both by the word transgressions and hamartia. Sins. That's who I was, not who I am. I asked Jesus to save me one day and I never looked back. In Isaiah 59 the prophet said this, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. Pray. Pray. He's always listening. I know that Satan would like to convince you, I'm talking to the ceiling. I'm talking to the ceiling. I feel like a fool. God hears every word you pray. Daniel said he was praying one time for three weeks. An angel came and said, You know what? God heard you the very first word you uttered three weeks ago. But I've been opposed by spiritual forces, and Michael finally came to my aid. But there is an unseen world that is overhead that is filled with angels and demons. And the reality of spiritual warfare is known some very deeply to them. They experience it constantly. Your sins hinder your prayers, but Satan can't. God hears your prayers, so pray without ceasing. But Isaiah continued on this issue of prayer and being heard by God. He said, but the verse 2, here is a problem, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. Have you ever felt that alienation as a child of God? I think we all have. I don't say that in condemnation of anybody. We, we've all felt that estrangement, that strain in the relationship. It's not that he stopped loving us. It's not that I stopped being a child of God, but I sensed the distance in the relationship. I didn't sense the nearness of his presence like I had before the sin was committed. I don't want to so persistently walk in the ways of the world and in compromise as a Christian that I am the one who turns down the volume of God's voice that I hear. My sins can do that. I want to keep a, a short track on you. He says, we used to be dead in our sins. You think about, there's many kinds of life. There's animal life, plant life, metal life, moral life, spiritual life. You might be alive in one sense, but dead in another. But to be spiritually dead means to be dead to God, dead to the things of the Spirit. It not, doesn't mean that we're physically dead, socially dead, or psychologically dead. And yet there is a real death anyway. You've seen people that had that dull and lackluster look in their eyes because they didn't know God. They had no hope. They had no help. The most vital part of a man's personality, his spirit is dead to the most important factor in life, God. That is defined as spiritual death. Like God had told Adam and even in the garden, the day you do this, the day you sin, 
Understand there's going to be a spiritual death that takes place. There's a price to be paid for. I know you think it's just an apple or whatever it was. I, it doesn't say what kind of fruit tree it was. In fact, it may have been a hot dog tree. I'm thinking that's what it was. Sonic sign probably on the top of the tree. Here's the bottom line. It doesn't matter what kind of fruit it was. It matters that God said don't eat of it. Because the day you do, it's going to result in a spiritual separation that you will regret for the rest of your life. It will cause a strain. Spiritual death, separation from God. But though Christians, we, we are now alive, we must never forget what we've been delivered from. You were dead. You, when you used to live, when you followed the ways of the world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the word ruler is archon. Jesus said three times in John's gospel that, G, that Satan himself is presently the ruler of this world. He became the ruler when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and title deed to the planet was turned over to him. People mistakenly blame God. Oh, God, why did God allow this hurricane, this tornado, this, this terrific? Why did God allow 9-11? He's not the prince of the power of the air. Satan is. But think about that title, the prince of the power of the air. How much stuff goes through the airwaves? Good, bad, ugly, and indifferent today. They're all unseen, by the way, very real in all sorts of different bandwidths and things like that. But just imagine that if he is the prince of the power over the air, does it make sense you want to be careful what you listen traveling through the airwaves? What's on your cell phone? What's on your TV? What's on your computer? You need to guard these things carefully. Satan is the prince of the power of the air temporarily. He will be dethroned and defrocked in due order. I can't wait. <clears throat> Barclay puts it this way in his daily Bible study series commentary. We commonly have a very wrong idea of sin. We would readily agree that the robber, the murderer, the razor slasher, the drunkard, the gangster are sinners. But since most of us are respectable citizens in our heart of hearts, we think that sin doesn't have very much to do with us we would probably rather resent being called hell-deserving sinners. But hamartia, the word in translated sin there, brings us face to face with what sin is. It's the failure to be what we ought to be and could be. The central idea of sin is failure. We have failed to keep the perfect moral law of God. We have failed in that. And I think that includes every man, woman, and child on planet Earth. So let's just agree, I'm a sinner, but I'm saved by grace. That's my identity. I am a sinner, but that's who I was, not what I'm currently practicing today. Sin kills off innocence. It kills off our ideals. It kills off even the will to live for God over time. I don't want sin to have anything to do to do with me in, in my life. It says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air, but the word isn't power in the Greek. It's exousia, which means authority. Authority. There's a difference between authority and power. Let me give you an example. When I was on the Colorado Springs Fire Department, if I donned in, was donned in my uh, outward apparel, the firefighting coat and the bunker pants and the boots and the helmet and all the rest of that stuff, I could hold up my hand like this, uh, even on Academy Boulevard, and cars would stop. 
It's not because I had the personal power to put my hands on the hood and bring them to a halt. I did not have the power. Satan is limited in how much power he has. But temporarily, he's been granted the authority. The cars would stop when I was a firefighter, not because of my physical size or ability to stop it. It's because I had been granted authority. And so I could hold up my hands, and people would come to a screeching halt. And if they wouldn't, the police behind me would go chase them down and pull them over and give them tickets. It was a wonderful thing. <laughs> it could go straight to your head. We have little power against the enemy of our souls, but we have been granted authority. Jesus said in the Great Commission, I've been given all authority, therefore I go send you out. All authority. I have authority in Christ, authority over demonic powers. We can cast out demons because they're answerable to the name of Jesus Christ. I don't come against demons and say something as stupid as I rebuke you. You know what the devil would do then? He'd go, <laughs> you? <laughs> Puny? You're nothing. But if I say the Lord rebuke you, that's a whole different issue. You have that authority. Pastor Jim, I need you to come over to my house and cast out a demon. Why don't you cast it out? Do you have the same Holy Spirit I do? Do you serve the same risen Lord? Yep. Do you have vegetable oil? Come on and do some anointing, do some praying, cast the demons out. Don't be afraid of them. Satan is mostly masquerading. He wants you to think he's got more power than this. He's powerless against Jesus Christ. And that power and that authority have been granted to you. But the church is failing to exercise that, I think, these last days. Jesus has all power. He has all authority. And we've been given all that we need for a life of godliness to, to fight the enemy. Jesus died to reconcile us and to reclaim the earth and us to God. That's what God is doing. It's a long process that we've been watching play out for 2,000 years now, but I can tell you that the Bible talks about a point in time in the future where China and Russia are drawn into the Middle East over a conflict that begins in Israel. That sounds real contemporary, doesn't it? Did you know that the Bible in the book of Daniel talks about an end times, end times, alliance between Russia and China and Iran? Do you realize that before this century, they never had a, a, a geopolitical alignment before? Never in the history of planet Earth. It's only been in, in the last 15 years or so that Russia has had anything to do with them. But now we see this axis of evil once again between China and Russia, and now Persia, ancient Persia, Iran is drawn into that. Now that they are this close to being a nuclear power, they stated that their first goal is to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Maybe what happened yesterday is the beginning of that siege. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought that the rapture of the church could occur any minute because of what we see occurring yesterday on the TV channels? Are you ready? Are you spirit-filled, born again, on fire, living for Jesus with your hair on fire and doing Mach 2? That's what we should be doing these last days. Oh, the enemy's beating on me. I'm such a victim. Oh, my life's falling apart. Get your eyes off of you. Get them on Jesus. 
the author, the finisher of our salvation. You're looking at the wrong thing. Oh, but you don't know my situation. Who cares? God does. You don't need me whining with you. I got no power. He's got all power. So if you come to me or any of the pastors or anybody else that knows and loves Jesus, they're going to say, well, let's pray. Let's pray together. Let's seek his face. He's got all power, all authority. We have not because we ask not. Which is, by the way, the next paragraph in my sermon notes. (laughs) Stealing my thunder. Never share your sermon notes with your wife. (laughs) Actually, I never do. It's the Holy Spirit that has to read the text for me. (laughs) Okay, I can deal with that. That's who we were. We used to be as disobedient as anyone that we know in the world. Verse 3, all of us, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, our flesh. You did what you wanted to do. And as long as you stayed out of jail, you didn't care what the consequences were. If it was pleasurable, you did it. You went for it. You didn't fight temptation. You gave into it. I had no struggles like that between my new nature and my old nature when I only had an old nature. But now as a Christian, you feel that tug of war, don't you? Because we still have an old nature that Jesus died to conquer in your life and mine. How do you conquer it? If you're not in the Word, it'll never happen. If you're not regularly in prayer, it'll never happen. If you are not in fellowship, it will never happen. How do I know these things? I thought you'd never ask. Would you keep your finger here and turn over to the book of Acts? You see there in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, the church at its purest and strongest. And what a church it was. You remember the context. Peter has just preached his first sermon with no notes, no preparation, no seminary, no Bible school, no education. But at Pentecost, something amazing happens. The Holy Spirit falls upon the disciples. They begin to speak in other, other languages. And, and they say, well, what are you guys like, drunk? It's 9 o'clock in the morning. Who gets drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning on the Temple Mount? For, for crying out loud, we're in church here. That, that's not what's going on. What has happened is in fulfillment of Scripture, 3,000 people Uh, come to faith in in Christ Jesus. And that's what I want you to look at in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled, baptized with, had the Holy Spirit come upon them in power, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Man, talk about church growth. No radio, no TV, no social media presence, no knocking on doors in the neighborhood. This is a God thing. This is the Holy Spirit thing. He is moving. What do you do with these brand new converts? I want to know what was the first thing that God did to this new entity that he just created called the Fellowship of Believers, the church. Skip over to verse 42. Here's what God impressed upon the leadership and his disciples. This is what Christians in all generations and all ages must do to stay strong. This is like, 
Let me give you an example here. He gives in this passage four principles that I want you to think of as four legs on a stool. All four necessary. Would you agree with me that all four of these legs are equally important? Now, you might say, well, Pastor Jim, I've got this one and this one. I got half of them, so I'm doing okay, right? No, you're going to fall. Try to sit on a stool with two legs, you will fall. But some Christians do that all the time. Well, I pray, but I don't read. Or I, or I read, but I don't fellowship. Or I fellowship, but I, I don't do communion. These are four legs, all of which must be held in perfect balance if you were to be a balanced Christian. I'm going to step on some toes. Just wanted you to tighten up your shoelaces here for just a second because this is what Scripture says now. They, verse 42 of Acts chapter 2, are you there? Raise your hand and say, I'm there. Okay, they devoted themselves. Strong word. In the original language, this is a strong word. They didn't just go, yeah, maybe I'll go to church if I feel like it today. Maybe, maybe not. Depends on who's playing football this afternoon. They devoted themselves supremely and above all else. They devoted themselves to four things, four legs, if you will. Number one, the apostles' teaching. What's that? The Word of God. The Word of God. Paul wrote half of the New Testament. We know what the apostles' teaching was because they wrote it down for us. Thank you, Jesus, for the New Testament. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to you. They devoted themselves, secondly, to the fellowship. The definite article there in the Greek language means that this is a church service. This is when they got together. They worshiped God and they pray and broke bread. The fellowship of the saints. This doesn't mean you hobnob with Christians over a cup of coffee at Starbucks. That's not what this means. When it says the fellowship, talking about church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. One, secondly, to fellowship. Uh, thirdly, to the breaking of bread. That's, that's communion. We do it monthly in this church. Other churches do it more or less. But the point is that Jesus said, when you do this, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. I don't want to have some meaningless ritual that becomes so trite and perfunctory that we, say, we take it for granted. So I want to remember the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to remember his blood shed so that I might be forgiven. I must remember that every time. But fourthly, there is something that's every bit as necessary as the preceding three, and they devoted themselves to prayer. Four legs on a stool. Satan has a saw in his hand. He has dedicated himself to sawing out the legs upon the stool which you sit. This is your faith. Satan is a work. Now, he does it slowly so that you don't hear him. So it's kind of like that. He doesn't care which leg he picks on. He just cares that you don't notice it. He just cares that if, any, if he can get any of those legs out from underneath you, you will fall spiritually. Best case scenario, you become Laodicean and lukewarm. Worst case scenario, you fall away from the Lord. That's what Satan is doing today. He is an adversary that is every bit as vicious as the Hamas terrorists that attacked Israel. 
He's not playing games. You must not either. You must not either. If we do not stand firm in our faith, Hezekiah was told, you will not stand at all. Today is the day of testing when we see what, in fact, our faith is is really made of. Verse 3, all of us lived among them one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts like the rest. We were, by nature, objects of wrath. We'd broken God's law. We weren't repentant about it in the least. We were pursuing our own wretched excess instead of giving any knowledge or thought to God at all, but because of His great love for us. It's not that you loved God first, it's that He loved you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. We sing that song, Amazing Love, but quite frankly, it staggers me to think that He loved me when I was at my worst. He loved me, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. When's the last time you did that? That's how much God loved you. I would have a very difficult time allowing one of my children to die for the sins of unrepentant people. I'm a little freer with my children. Don't even get me started about my grandchildren. I think you better praise God Jesus came for you because you ain't taking my grandkids to pay that price. But he's already paid the price for us. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you've been saved. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. You couldn't pay for it. We were by objects because of our willful sin. We were by objects dedicated to his wrath. But then he drew us to himself. Remember Jesus said, uh, one time, nobody can come to the Son unless the Father draw him. So be praying that the Heavenly Father would draw people to himself in the knowledge of Christ these last days. That's what they need. They need Jesus. They may not know that, and they may confuse it with religion, show them different, love them into the kingdom. It is most surprising when, when me and Luke go over to the Dutch brothers over here And I always like it when they get nosy with you. I guess they think it's friendly. Maybe they're taught that in their dumb classes or something. I don't know. They say, well, what are you doing today? Well, I'm at work over here at the church. Oh, what do you do at the church? Like you're the janitor or something? I I said, no, I I pastor the church over there. I said, but it's my good privilege to tell people about Jesus. Do you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Uh, uh, mm, uh, And and then they disappear. And then somebody else comes to the window, and you're going, all I need... Just know this, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. And then they try to haul out some card. Well, my great, great, great grandpappy used to be like a missionary. Well, that's great, except we're not riding anybody's coattails into heaven. If you don't know the Lord, we're not going to heaven because of his great love for us. You know when Satan is attacking us, when Satan is trying to appeal to our flesh, I think there's two things that we must constantly remind ourselves of. Number one, greater is he that is in you than he that is Satan who is in the world. 1 John 4, 4, Satan is not greater than Jesus Christ. You can't even equate the two. The God of peace, oh, I love this, Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan's head beneath your feet. 
Does that feel good or what? I mean, just saying that. You just want to. I remember when Luke was four years old. We lived out in California going to seminary. They have snails out there that are this big. And they call them escargot in restaurants, but in the, on the sidewalk, they're just called snails. And, and Luke, when he was four or five, used to del- just delight going out there going, and as slow as he could. And the guts, and the, you know, and I, I was thinking, boy, who taught you that? Man, don't do that. We could eat those things. We could boil them up at the house, put some butter on them, a little garlic. I don't know why he liked those, but just imagine doing that to Satan. Hearing the bones cracking. Yeah, I've been waiting all my life to do this. God will soon crush Satan beneath our feet. Our victory is sure. It, it is coming. But notice that, that all of his dealings with us now is because of his great love. He said at first there in verse 4, it's scattered throughout the whole passage. In his love, he made us alive with him. God revealed himself to me. When I wasn't seeking him, he was seeking me. Drew me to himself. He's so gracious, so kind, so loving. It, it humbles me. Brings tears to my eyes when I remind myself how good God has been to me. Verse 6, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. At one point in time when we said yes to Jesus is the thrust of the original language. At that moment, it's as good as done. He seated us in the heavenlies with Christ. That's our position in Christ. It hasn't happened yet, but that is our position. Someday our bodies will catch up with our position. But know that your destiny, if you know Christ, is heaven. It's not earth. Satan is not in control of our eternal destiny. God is. That moment we were saved, that, that's our position. It's not our current possession or experience, but it's coming. It's coming. Uh, this is how God sees everything in Scripture from this point future. Our tendency as sinful people is to look at this point backwards, isn't it? Well, Pastor Jim, you don't know what a dysfunctional past I came from. Paul said, this one thing I do, forgetting the past, looking forward to what lies in Christ Jesus. Yet three quarters of the counseling in this church on is people in their present pickle. And their eyes aren't on Christ, their eyes are on their circumstances and situation. Elevate your eyesight. He's got all of the answers. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Give God glory. Don't cower before a defeated enemy, and yet we often do. Oh, I don't want to talk about spiritual warfare. It gives me the heebie-jeebies. Well, you're right where Satan wants you to be. Bondage to fear and doubt and insecurity when, in fact, Satan does not want you to know how absolutely powerful you are in Christ Jesus. You got the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Have you ever seen a Roman machaira? It's razor sharp on both sides, and they conquered the known world with their armies, in part because of their use of the sword. Why can't Christians be as articulate with the sword, the Word of God, as they were in defeating their enemies with a, a human sword? Verse 6, and God raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. You will never show up at heaven's doorstep and say, I knew I'd get here. I deserved it. Well, that was the mistake the Pharisees made in the time of Jesus. 
They figured that God owed them because, hey, they kept the law. They kept the very minutiae. They'd tithe all the way down to the last mint tea leaf in their gardens, for crying out loud. They were meticulous in their observance of the law, but they didn't mind crucifying the Son of God. You see the hypocrisy in that? You don't want to be a legalistic Christian. You want to be one who is loving and kind and gentle and constantly realizing I'm saved by grace. I'm kept by grace. It's in Him that I find my strength renewed. Those that wait upon the Lord will mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not be faint. I'm going, man, I can't wait. I can't wait. That's what lies ahead. Faith in Christ Jesus is the key that opens the door to heaven. Hmm. Interesting. I've got a lot of keys on my key ring on my desk. Thought about bringing them out for a sermon illustration, but it's too big of a wad of keys to fit in my pocket conveniently. You know, there's a lot of keys on there, but there's only one of those keys that'll get you in the front door of my house. You may say, well, I don't want to try that key. I want to try another key. Well, that sounds dumb. But if you want to try all the keys, try. Boy, people do. Well, let's try Buddha. Let's try a little of this. Let's try a little of that. Let's dabble in the world over here a little bit. Maybe that'll be, unlock the key to the door to happiness. We've become narcissistic, self-centered, thinking that it's all about the fulfillment of my flesh today. And it's not. It's about the denial of my flesh so that I can walk in the Spirit and whatever lies ahead, I'm ready for it, spiritually speaking. Your faith has to grow these last days. There is no such thing as stasis in the human, in the Christian experience. If you're not moving ahead in Christ Jesus, you're losing ground. There's a lot of people who think Christianity is nothing more than cruise control on an RV. Push the button and you can go to the bathroom or take a nap and everything will be just fine. It's not how cruise control works, A. But B, as a Christian, there is no cruise control. If you're not gaining speed, you're losing ground in Christ Jesus. We're falling backwards into the ways of the world and the weakness of the flesh, and I can't afford to give in to that. It is by the riches of His grace, expressed in His kindness in Christ Jesus that we're saved. For it is by grace that you have been saved. Verse 8, oh, here's your highlighter passage. You didn't, you didn't bring your highlighter? Did you know it's a sin not to bring your highlighter to church? You know that. Bring a highlighter next Sunday. Bring your Bible and your highlighter. You're going to need both for the rest of your life. You have been saved. When you sin, you may sense the breach in fellowship, but it doesn't mean that you forfeited your salvation. You're still a child of God. What you feel is that alienation because of sin. Repent of it. Confess it as sin. Get right with God. Ask Him to wash you. The effects of your salvation will endure into eternity. Every day I want to be washed and cleansed, forgiven. I am saved. How am I saved? For it is by grace, God's grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. Now, some people say that means the grace was given to you by God. Well, it certainly was. Uh, but, and it's not from yourselves. Uh, it's the gift of God. And the gift there is referring to faith. That's not what it says in the original language. 
That's not what it says. In the original language, you can't confuse your verbs and the nouns that they attach to because of very specific endings. Can't do that. So no, this doesn't refer to the fact that you can take credit for the faith that you exercised. Can't do it. It's worded in the neuter. All this is from God. All this is from God. Whatever He gave me, it's from Him. He's drawn me to Himself by the work of His Holy Spirit. His Word speaks to me because it is powerful and living, sharper than a two-edged sword. This is all on God. Whatever, I can take credit for what? Nothing. You see, if we interpret it that says, oh, and this is a gift from God regarding your faith, then you could say, well, I got faith. I got faith that can move mountains. All of this, all of your salvation has come to you a gift of God. And we need to give it. Otherwise, we can gravitate towards pride. Isn't that what happened to the Pharisees? They started taking credit. Well, look at me. Look how righteous. Look how long my prayers are. Look at my faithful tithing and all the rest. It's like they had something to do with their salvation. Nothing could have been further from the truth. How are we saved? That verses 8 and 9 answer the question. How are you saved? By grace. Just say, thank you, Jesus. It keeps you humble. You didn't save yourself. You can't save yourself. He's done it for you. Saved by grace. The Greek word is charis. Charis. You've heard the word charismatic? If we're going to be true to the original language, then that means that you believe that your salvation is a work of grace. You believe that? Can I see your hands? You believe you're saved by grace? Uh-oh. You just identified yourselves as a charismatic. I'm just saying your Baptist friends are going to make fun of you because you're charismatic. It's biblical. You're saved by grace. You believe that. In fact, the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are mentioned uh, in Romans and Corinthians are called the charismata, the grace gifts. They're the special gifts that God has sprinkled throughout His church, His body, enabling us to do the ministry and work that He's called us to. So even in the spiritual gifts, He gets all glory, honor, and praise. From beginning to end, it is all about God. Grace, what is grace? God's loving kindness, it's His unmerited favor and forgiving love towards us. Saved from what? Saved from sin? Saved from death, saved from the wrath of God, saved from hell itself. But you've been saved from those things. What are you saved to? You're saved to eternal life. You're saved to Christ. You're saved to being reconciled with Almighty God. Your eternal destiny, that's what you've been saved to. The best is yet ahead. The best is yet ahead. Praise God in heaven. Verse 9, we're not saved because of works, because I was a goody two-shoes or I kept the law well enough, so that no one can boast. I didn't keep the law. In fact, when I was a pagan, I didn't even know what the law was. I didn't know a priest in the Catholic Church of New York City that I was going to at the end of Tottenville in Staten Island. I didn't know a priest that could recite the Ten Commandments. How can you keep that which you do not know? But there's more than just the Ten Commandments of the law. There's 603 other Jewish rules and regulations. Have you kept all of those too? No, I don't even know what the ten are, let alone what the other 600 plus are. There are the, sin, there are the things that condemn you and strange you from God. 
You say, well, I don't think I'm a sinner. Well, let me ask you this, according to the law of God, if you've broken one part of the law, then you're guilty of breaking the whole thing, as James says. Let me ask you this. You ever had any shrimp, crab, lobster, catfish? You're going to hell. Sorry. Can't eat bottom dwellers. You can only eat fish with scales. Can't, can't eat that stuff. I am so glad I'm not saved by keeping the law. None of us did. I mean, life without crab, shrimp, and lobster? That's not life. That's not life. Saved by grace. Thank you, Jesus. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. This whole thing is a gift of God. He didn't have to give it. It's a gift. Not from works so that no one can boast. That's why Paul would later say, if you're going to boast, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Don't boast on yourself. Don't brag to people about your education, your looks, your youth, your car, your house, your whatever. Don't do that. Brag about Jesus. Verse 10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Oh, I love verse 10. We are God's workmanship. The Greek word is poema. It's where we get our word poem, but in the original language means so much more than that. It literally means a handiwork, a careful work of art, a masterpiece even. Now, when's the last time you looked in the mirror and you go, dude, that's a masterpiece? <laughs> yeah, that, but that's how God sees us. That's how God sees us. He sees us for who we are going to be, not who we are now. He knows that his children will walk into maturity someday in their glorified bodies. Michelangelo, the great 15th century painter and, and sculptor, was asked one time, how do you see these magnificent statues when all that stands before you is a 20-foot square block of marble? How in the world do you carve a pieta out of that? He said, the work of art is inside. All I have to do is remove the excess on the outside. Well, that's what God is doing in your life and mine. You're the block of marble. You're the block of marble. What God is doing is removing all of the stuff that doesn't spiritually advance His purposes in your life. One at a time. There go your old nature, the old sins, besetting sins that you used to struggle with. Work of art's on the inside. All we've got to do is get to it. And just as the artist expresses himself in his work, so God expresses himself in you and I. His nature. He's transforming us in the image of Jesus. Isn't that glorious? Someday that process will be complete. What are the good works that he's prepared in advance? in advance for us to do? One word. Ministry. Ministry. Well, Pastor Jim, I thought that's what you were called to do. <laughs> no. I am a minister, but so are you. You've been gifted and specially called and equipped to do things and to meet people and to, and to speak into their lives. I'll, I'll never have that opportunity, but you do. That's your prayer assignment. Those are the people that are pre-Christians that you need to be praying for them if they don't know the Lord. 
He's prepared us to love one another and to tell the world that he, he loves them. He's got a plan to redeem them from their empty lives. He's got a plan to give all of us hope, our lives meaning, purpose, and direction. God wants to reveal all of that to us. He's not left us on a ship on the ocean without a rudder engine or sail or compass. He has provided all of these things for us in Christ Jesus. He gives our lives hope, meaning, purpose, direction. I need that. I need that. But a rudder only works on a ship that's moving. If you're dead in the water, you can turn the tiller one side or the other. It makes no difference whatsoever. But once you are moving forward in the Holy Spirit, he then has his hand on the tiller, and he can lead it anywhere he wants to. Remember when Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat and the storm blew up and the disciples freaked out, don't you care that we're going to die? Where was Jesus? In the back of the boat where they steer it. Huh. He's in charge of your boat, dear friends. You may take on a little water from time to time. Don't worry about it. Bail. Bail water. Trust God. Ask him to navigate you into calmer waters. Sometimes he comes walking to the water on us sometimes, and sometimes he's in the boat with us, assuring us that we'll get to our destination. You will make it. We conquer in the end. That's why he's given us spiritual fruit and spiritual gifts that we need to fulfill his call on our lives. And all of us are called. We're all in the ministry. You every bit as much as me. Every bit as much as me. Are you moving in that direction though? Are you yielded? Are you seeking the leading of the Holy Spirit? Are you moving forward spiritually by being in his word and in prayer and fellowship and in communion? Because if you're not moving, the rudder's worthless. He wants to lead and guide and direct you. But quite frankly, you and I are an unfinished masterpiece, aren't we? Yeah. Still, still a lot of things that need to be worked out. We're a work under construction, to be sure. But God is in the process of molding us and making us into Jesus' image. All he wants you and I to do is yield. Yield. Seek the Lord while he may be found. That's all that is required of you and I. Don't complicate this. Don't overthink it. Seek. That's on you. That's on me. Seek the Lord while he may be found. In other words, don't walk out of here this morning being a lazy Christian. If you have been, repent of it and start doing it right. Because if Satan's going to chop out a leg from underneath you, it's going to be an ugly thing when you fall. And the demons and hordes of hell will be laughing at the top of their voices. They've brought down one more child of God. We can't, we can't go there. You know, the emphasis in chapter 1 was God's great purpose, ultimately, to bring all things under the headship of His Son. And then in chapter 2, he starts detailing that. It starts with our salvation. That's what God's doing. He's going to redeem the entire universe to himself. But it starts with you and I, the pinnacle of his, of his creation. He wants to redeem each one of us. Our part, remembering who we were, remembering who we are. Remembering what lies ahead for you and I. Satan does not win. We are reconciled to God. Keeping your eye on the future will keep you hopeful. Hopeful. 
This world is not all there is. In fact, the, the 60, 70, 80 years that we're on this planet matter little chronologically in, in the scheme of eternity. God's got the last word in this. Do you know God? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? He loves you so much. He's got such a plan for your life. Now is not the day and age to take a nap spiritually and coast. Now is not, not when we're watching the stuff, especially over in the Middle East, that we are today. You know what God chooses us. He cleanses what God cleanses. He molds what He molds. He fills what He fills. He uses. Watch out for sin. It's subtle. It's very subtle. It'll always appeal to your old nature, not your new. There will be a still small voice that says, you're moving in the realm of excess. Don't go there. Don't cross that line. Don't, don't be in that place. I, there's an old adage that reminds us that. The adage goes like this. You sow an act, you will reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. What's yours? Mine's heaven. Mine's heaven. If I keep my eyes on him, the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's stand together, shall we? Pups, you got the praise band you're going to drag up here? Cool. Heavenly Father, I am so glad that your word paints out for us what the last chapter holds. We'll walk into eternity someday with the trials and tribulations of this life far behind us. You died to help us to walk in victory today with our heads held high. Lord, there is no room for doubt or despair or depression or discouragement. Our eyes are on you, the God of all hope, the God of glory. We believe the greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. I believe, Lord, that your word gives us all of the guidance, hope, and direction that we need to successfully navigate through the rapids of this life. Our eyes are on you. I am so thankful that you, you and you alone have the last word. Not Hamas, not Satan, not the governments of this world. You have the last word. And we praise you for that, Father, in Jesus' name. Let's sing this together. from the deep and rages around me but I will remember when thou born within my heart the battle almost lost I will Yeah.